It's May 29th, 2020. Every four years, right around now, the American political media, myself included, begins to turn to our favorite parlor game, guessing who the presidential nominees will choose as their vice presidents. Will it be a man or a woman? A governor or a senator? Someone to attract a specific ideological group? Or someone to reach out to a certain geographic region? For most of the presidential campaigns, and then for most of a president's time in the White House, the running mate does not get much attention. But from now until July, once the nominees are chosen but before their VP picks are unveiled, it's the number twos who are at the center of speculation. And no one knows more about VPs or how they're picked than Joel Goldstein, an emeritus professor at St. Louis University and the nation's preeminent scholar of the vice presidency. The first qualification has to be, is this person somebody who reachable voters will perceive as a plausible president, somebody who voters who you hope to appeal to will look at as somebody who they could see sitting in, in the Oval Office. As presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden begins the vetting process for his running mate, we caught up with Joel to put Biden's selection process into context and hear some tales about past vice presidential picks. Later in the episode, you'll also hear from Ested Herndon, a national political reporter at the New York Times who has been covering the Biden campaign closely and will give us the inside scoop on the somewhat unorthodox selection process they have run. This has been a cycle in which some of those uh, previous conventions of how vice presidential uh, picks are done have been pushed aside. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio and me, this is Wake Up to Politics. While some wait with bated breath to discover who the vice presidential picks will be, there is often the common refrain. Do the running mates really matter? It's true that most voters may not have the running mates on their minds when they cast their ballots, but Joel says that doesn't mean who the nominees pick as their VPs doesn't have an impact on the presidential election, especially in an election as competitive as the 2020 race is likely to be. We're talking about a choice that can make a difference at the margins. But if you look at our presidential campaigns, presidential elections, in the 15 elections since 1960, six of them have been decided basically at the margins. Who the presidential candidates pick is also significant because it is possibly the most lasting decision they make in their campaigns, an early insight into how they will govern as president if elected. Where the vice presidential candidate makes a difference in helping form the way in which we perceive the competing presidential candidates, whether we think that they're good decision makers or bad decision makers, whether we think that they value the things that we value or that they value different things. I think that's where the selection, because of its visibility and because of its significance, is the first presidential decision that most presidential candidates make. That's where it becomes important. The process that Joe Biden is using to pick his eventual running mate right now, and that Donald Trump used to pick Mike Pence in 2016, is roughly the same one presidential nominees have used for decades. The process that has developed beginning in about in 1976 going forward is that the presidential candidate typically puts in place some sort of a process to both identify who are the people who ought to be considered and then to engage in the vetting process. The presumptive nominee generally puts together a search committee to conduct the vetting for them. In Biden's case, that committee is made up of former Connecticut Senator Chris Dodd, Delaware Congresswoman Lisa Blunt Rochester, 
Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti, and his longtime counsel, Cynthia Hogan. And then they'll begin a serious vetting process. They'll ask each of those people who are being vetted to turn over just a massive amount of documentation, perhaps 10 years of tax returns, financial statements, speeches that they've made, uh, information about their professional life, information about their family history. Over time, this vet has become more and more exhaustive. It's almost like interrogatories that you would uh, use in, in a discovery process and litigation where you'd ask somebody questions. When Jimmy Carter did this in 1976, his vetter, Charles Kerbo, who was an Atlanta lawyer, had 19 questions that he um, gave to each of the uh, seven people that Carter was, was going to interview. Nowadays, the number of questions is, is probably uh, in excess of 100, if you include subparts and, and so forth. And it goes to everything about the person, their health history, their financial history, their relationships with other people, romantic relationships, their speeches, if they've been a lawyer, who they've represented, if they've been in business, what their associations are, what sort of nonprofits they've been involved in. The top candidates will also be brought in for interviews with a member of the selection committee. In the last and the most embarrassing questions, the most personal questions, the sort of questions that you would never ask a human being outside of this sort of context. Joe Lieberman, who was Al Gore's running mate in 2000, um, compared the process to having a colonoscopy without anesthesia. Finally, before making their decision, the presidential candidate will sit down with the potential VP contenders who have made it through these rounds of vetting. And they'll talk about how they see the office, how they, how they see issues. Presidential candidate will try and be making a judgment and see whether or not he or she thinks that the two of them um, would be compatible and so forth. Presidential candidates usually start this process around now and make a decision before their party's convention. Generally, at the beginning, like Joel said, they start with a long list of politicians, governors, senators, members of the House, and often a few non-traditional figures, like business or nonprofit or military leaders, thrown in as well. This year, Joe Biden made the unusual step of limiting his options before he had even clinched the nomination, when he made this pledge in March. And I commit that I will, in fact, appoint a, I'll pick a woman to be vice president. There are a number of women who are qualified to be president tomorrow. I would pick a woman to be my vice president. Mr. Yeah. Vice President, if I could just follow up. Just to be clear, you just committed here tonight that your running mate, if you get the nomination, will be a woman? Yes. Joel says making such a promise is pretty much unprecedented in the annals of vice presidential history. But Biden's eventual selection of a woman as his running mate will not be a historic decision on its own. Whoever she is, she will actually be the third female vice presidential nominee. Democrat Walter Mondale chose Congresswoman Geraldine Ferraro in 1984, and Republican John McCain chose Governor Sarah Palin in 2008. When they were chosen, both Ferraro and Palin were seen as bold attempts to shake up the campaign, which is exactly what Mondale and McCain were looking for. When Mondale chose Geraldine Ferraro, it came after a search process in which, for the first time in history, Mondale interviewed not only women, I mean, he interviewed uh, three women possible vice presidential candidates, but two African-Americans and one Hispanic, in addition to a few white males. While Mondale had a political motivation to try and remake the political landscape, he also very much was making a statement of trying to open up American politics to traditionally excluded groups. 
in 2008, when Senator McCain chose Governor Palin, he really wanted to choose Senator Lieberman um, to make sort of a cross-party selection. And he was persuaded that if he chose Lieberman, that, that there would be a fight at the Republican convention, which could turn the Republican convention, instead of being a celebration of McCain, it could turn it into a, a story about the fight over his running mate. And he also was persuaded that a ticket of two sort of white guys in their 60s wasn't going to be elected, that he needed to do something dramatic. In both cases, the men at the top of the ticket were trailing badly in the polls and would later lose in landslides and turned to a female running mate as a last-minute effort to lift their chances of being elected. In some ways, Biden's decision is notable in that it hasn't been interpreted as a dramatic move in this fashion. Instead, it's a pretty natural move being made by a nominee that, unlike Mandela or McCain, has even or better odds of moving into the White House next year. However, Joel reminded us, the historic nature of that possibility shouldn't be overlooked. If Biden's running mate is elected, I mean, in some sense, it will be the first time in our history where the election of the vice president will, in some sense, be more historic than the election of the president, because it will be the first time in our history that a woman has been elected to national office after 116 men. Who might that woman be? Coming up, we'll share insights from my interview with Ested Herndon of The New York Times, who will break down the top contenders Biden world is considering as the potential next VP. As we talked about at the top of the episode, the vice presidential selection process usually starts with a relatively long list of names from different backgrounds in politics, business, and other fields. That list is then narrowed down over a matter of weeks and even months. But uniquely, the Biden shortlist has taken shape pretty fast. Of course, Biden could end up picking anyone. But Ested Herndon, a national political reporter with the New York Times, says a few top contenders have already risen to the top of the pack in part because of Biden's pledge to only consider women. There's the people who have been kind of widely speculated for a while. So I think that would include probably Senator Kamala Harris, former presidential candidate Senator Amy Klobuchar, um, uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, uh, uh, Stacey Abrams. And then we know that some people have met with Biden, have done events with Biden, and that includes that kind of list of people. I would include uh, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer on that. Uh, also. From there, a few other names have emerged as lower-tier possibilities, like Senators Catherine Cortez Masto of Nevada or Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin, or Congresswoman Val Demings of Florida. But since most of the speculation has centered around that initial list of five, I asked instead to run through what each of them might add to a Biden ticket. But the logic for them goes probably like this. Elizabeth Warren would bring in uh, uh, progressives or young people uh, her supporters say, and that would help round out the places where Biden is weak. Stacey Abrams uh, would be a person who has those voting rights credentials, which is obviously a focus for Democrats. But there's also someone who appeals to younger voters as a Black woman and could mobilize Black voters in new ways. Um, uh, Senator Amy Klobuchar, someone who performed pretty well, and particularly in New Hampshire, um, in the presidential primary among a kind of white moderate there is a view that some of those white, um, those white suburbanites you need to uh, convince in the important electoral college states that she could appeal to. She also has a kind of senator record um, that allows her to, 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 to really have uh, um, qualifications to be 
the next president. And Senator uh, Kamala Harris is probably a, a, a mixture of both in a, in a unique way. She's a historic figure in the Senate, so those qualifications are checked. Um, in, the, in the primary campaign, although she didn't um, uh, win over Black people or young people, she did leave with pretty good favorability numbers among them. So I think that would probably round out the top tier. Biden, a former vice president himself, has also been pretty open about the qualities he is looking for in his VP. Well, he has said that, um, you know, he wants someone who's ready to be president on day one. This is someone who went through that process himself, obviously, and really thinks that one of the reasons that Barack Obama chose him to be the vice president is that he could trust him to be um, a good uh, president if he was called to lead at any point. And I think that that's what Biden is going to look for, number one and also that he really prioritizes um, what he calls being simpatico or, or getting along with the vice presidential candidate. And so that's gonna take um, at least a month to be able to whittle down that list and then for them to then be able to have a kind of final round of interviews. So this can be a long haul. In fact, the entire process of Biden's vice presidential selection has been unusually out in the open, much more public than in past cycles, when presidential candidates mostly picked their running mates behind closed doors. While it has often been tradition for potential running mates to deny that they are under consideration, most of the women Ested mentioned earlier have publicly said they are undergoing vetting for the job, and some have even gone so far as to openly campaign for it. Uh, some of that is just a change in media environments and, and the change in the type of person that's being considered. Um, and, and some of that, you know, shouldn't be uh, overblown. I mean, uh, they're responding to media questions and they're saying what we always knew to be true, right? So even if, you know, Senator Kamala Harris would say, I wasn't interested, we know that she is. And so it's kind of a semantic difference um, that I think changes. That's just a, a sign of a more modern Washington rather than a sign of a uh, any like grand um, traditionalism falling to the end. But we know that Biden is a traditionalist. And so whatever they say publicly, this is principally gonna be a decision between Biden and his advisors that takes place in private and happens really based on the uh, private connections that these people have with each other. There are some precedents for presidential nominees essentially interviewing their potential vice presidents out in the open. In 2016, President Trump held rallies with many of the candidates on his VP shortlist to see how they gelled with him on the campaign trail. That's an option that has been ruled out by the coronavirus, but many of the politicians Biden has been considering have made appearances in his virtual campaign events. Klobuchar and Whitmer, for example, have both been guests on his new podcast. Warren and Harris have both participated in virtual fundraisers. Through this public audition process, a number of prominent Democrats have weighed in about who they want to see on Biden's ticket. In particular, Many African-American and Latino leaders have been vocal about wanting him to pick a person of color. Biden has also faced pressure to pick someone progressive. It's a difficult tightrope to walk, as a variety of voices have thrown out a lot of conflicting demands. And it's just about what to prioritize. Are they going to prioritize um, um, ideological sameness? Are they going to prioritize um, rounding out the ticket in terms of race and age or gender? Are they going to prioritize um, kind of... Uh, uh, his personal qualities and, and who he gets along with. But also, what communities are they looking for? You know, the, the logic of us selecting a Black woman says that, oh, you know, Black people changed the course of the primary in South Carolina and revived Biden. That should be rewarded with the vice presidential selection. It is not a certainty that selecting a Black woman feels like a reward to all Black voters. And then more than that, that Biden feels the need to do that he still has to win a general. I mean, that's not to say that the black women will not help him do that, 
but that's going to be one of the priorities that they have to do. Do you listen to the voices that got you here? Are you listening? Are you looking forward to the voices um, that you're going to need for the general election? And or are you prioritizing the kind of interpersonal relationship? It's not an either or. It's an and. And I think that it is just a choice of what they decide to prioritize in this role. This will not be the summation of their outreach to these communities. They're going to have to do other things. And so that's why you see a Bernie and Biden task force, even though a Warren is being considered, those things are going to continue even if they select Amy Klobuchar. The changes in rhetoric will continue even if they select Elizabeth Warren. It has to be part of a bigger scheme um, to, to tell voters a, a, a bigger story. But it's not a decision that's unique to the Biden team. Joel says past vice presidential decisions have also boiled down along similar lines. There are two sort of general approaches. One is sort of reinforcement, and that's a relatively less often uh, approach where you pick somebody who sort of double downs on your characteristics. The most prominent example of that is Bill Clinton choosing Al Gore in 1992. When it comes to reinforcing picks, think Amy Klobuchar someone whose ideology matches up pretty closely with Joe Biden's and would thus be doubling down on his moderate platform. Then, there's the complementary approach. Think someone like Kamala Harris or Elizabeth Warren, who would bring racial or ideological balance to the ticket. And so you look to somebody who will broaden your appeal either ideologically or geographically or generationally um, or in some other way. But Estead says it's important to remember that the vice presidential pick shouldn't be seen as the magical key to reaching a specific part of the electorate. When you look at the primary, there were multiple people of color who ran and they didn't win. And they didn't win because they didn't have support of people of color, partly. And so like, uh, obviously the individual identity of these people was not um, enough to motivate their uh, certain communities to vote for them. And so I think that we should not be um, uh, reductive and think that every black person, motivating the black person requires having a black person on the ticket. We just saw a primary in which that wasn't true. And so, um, you know, that's the kind of assumptions that I think some people make um, that we should be wary of. It also doesn't mean it's not true, right? There are a sense of racial solidarity that comes with a lot of voters, and there could be a real motivation uh, to, to, to install the first black woman as VP. And so uh, I think both sides of that have a kind of merit base, but we shouldn't assume. And I think the primary is the best example because you had Cory Booker, you had Kamala Harris, and they were never really able to make inroads with Black voters in mass. No matter which approach Biden picks, or if he tries to satisfy both, his vice presidential choice is an especially important one, in part because of his viability in the general election, but also because of his age and the way he has described his vision of a Biden presidency. Don't mean to sound morbid, but Joe Biden is also a pretty old guy. And so there's a sense that there is a, a, a big choice of the direction of this party that, that the vice president's social selection will bring. Um, he's talked about kind of being a transitional president. So clearly someone who is in that high profile role for four years would have a better um, a leg up on being who the party transitions to. If reports about Biden serving only one term are true, we might not just be talking about a 2020 vice presidential candidate, but also a 2024 Democratic primary frontrunner. And then, of course, there's the coronavirus pandemic, which has not only reshuffled how the VP picks are being considered, but also raised the stakes even further for the decision. When Barack Obama entered office in 2009 amid the last Great Recession, 
It was Joe Biden who he tapped to oversee the stimulus package that Congress quickly passed. If Biden is elected this year, his running mate could take a lead role in helping him rebuild America's economy and public health. Now that we have entered this kind of historic job losses, I think that the, the, the ability for Donald Trump to run on a good economy has eroded. And the ability for, um, for, for Joe Biden to say, hey, let's just get this back to normal has eroded. And so every member of uh, the ticket, that includes president and vice president, are going to have to find, are going to have to, you know, change their rhetoric to rise up to that challenge. And I think that's going to include the vice president. It would not surprise me if we saw someone even like Amy Klobuchar or Kamala Harris, who wasn't really embracing kind of big reforms in the primary, embrace some of those if we see them on the ticket, because just that's, that's just what the moment um, has seemed to require. The Wake Up to Politics podcast is produced by me, Gabe Fleischer, and Tim Lloyd, the senior producer of on-demand and content partnerships at St. Louis Public Radio. To follow the vice presidential guessing game as Joe Biden nears a decision on his running mate, you can subscribe to my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com. Mm-hmm.